Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Nosithia Zuma and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Union slam retrenchment process at South African Broadcasting Corporation and Nigeria set to receive its first delivery of COVID-19 vaccines. In economics news, South African state-owned defense company CFO resigns and in sports news, Patrice Mutsipe in CAF presidential poll position. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Aman Musa, good morning. Zimbabwe's second vice president, Kimbu Mohadi, has described the sexual misconduct allegations against him as a campaign to discredit him. Earlier this year, three audio recordings of Mohadi made the rounds on social media. He was allegedly soliciting sexual favors from different women. Noma Bulane reports. After mounting pressure from the public, advocacy groups and social media, the second vice president, Kembo Mohadi, has left office. In his resignation letter, he insists that the allegations are flames of lies which are muddling his reality of his family life. He says this was sponsored political sabotage. Mohadi says his resignation will allow him space and time to seek legal remedy to clear his name. In the recordings which surfaced, a man can be heard scheduling to have sex at his office. The man is allegedly Muhadi. The woman on the other end of the line are believed to be his subordinates working in his office. The 71-year-old has thanked the nation for their support during his tenure. Meanwhile, in the U.S., f- uh, fellow Democrats are putting pressure on New York Governor Andrew Cuomo to resign. He's accused of sexual misconduct by two former aides. On Sunday, Cuomo, who denies touching anyone, apologized if any of his comments had been misinterpreted. But New York Mal- uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio says that if someone tries to use their power to have sex with subordinates, then they should exit public service. South Africa's health minister, Dr. Zulim Kizes, conceded that the country is far from reaching its target in vaccinations. Over 70,000 healthcare workers have been given the jab since the start of the vaccination program. The country received the first consignment of 80,000 doses of Johnson & Johnson vaccines almost two weeks ago. At the weekend, another 80,000 doses arrived in South Africa. Mkize says the more should more should be done to accelerate the vaccination of healthcare workers. At this point, uh, up till last night, we've done over 70,000. It's still a very, very small number compared to the 1.5 million that we need to ultimately reach in terms of health workers three phases that we've put up the first phase is mainly health workers the next phase is going to be all frontline workers and the rest of the people who are actually uh, serving community on a frontline basis and those with comorbidities so that angle is going to require us to have more and more um, uh, vaccines and then of course the last one will be for everyone 
Police in Malawi's capital, Ilongwe, have used tear gas to disperse irate school pupils who caused major traffic disruptions as they staged protests to force schools to reopen. The government had ordered the reopening of schools, which were closed six weeks ago, following a sharp rise in COVID-19 deaths and infections. But teachers have defied the order, demanding to be paid a risk allowance, which the government said it was unable to meet. Pupils wore their school uniform and took to the streets in other parts of the country as well. The president of the Teachers' Union of Malawi says that the government had called for negotiations to resume on uh, Tuesday. And finally, a staggering 20 million people in war-torn Yemen need humanitarian assistance and protection with childhood in the country described as a special kind of hell. Those are the words of the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who was addressing a high-level virtual pledging event to raise billions of dollars to support the millions of Yemenis on the brink of catastrophe. Sharon Bryce Peace reports. Millions in the country have been pushed to the brink of famine after six years of war that has killed tens of thousands in a country that now represents the worst humanitarian crisis anywhere in the world. Guterres told the donor conference that it was impossible to overstate the severity of the suffering in Yemen, with 16 million people expected to go hungry this year alone. He said nearly 50,000 Yemenis were already starving to death with the worst conditions found in conflict-hit areas. Guterres warned that communities ravaged by years of conflict would bear emotional scars for generations. As we implored donors to pledge the almost $4 billion required to meet the humanitarian demands on the ground. That's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News. Independent. And impartial. From an African perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultra Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. It's 7.07 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Nigeria will this week receive its first delivery of COVID-19 vaccines with nearly 4 million doses set to arrive in Africa's most populous nation through the Global COVAX program. The agency in charge of the country's vaccination campaign did not say in its announcement when inoculations would begin, but the first doses are to be administered to frontline healthcare personnel. The 3.92 million doses of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine are due to arrive on well today. Channel Africa's Collins Atohengbe reports from Lagos. The Secretary of the Government of the Federation and Chairman of the Presidential Task Force on COVID-19, Boss Mustafa, says Nigeria will receive 4 million doses of the product for which adequate preparation, including conducive storage condition, has been made ready. The Presidential Task Force has been 
assured that Nigeria will receive the initial 4 million doses of AstraZeneca vaccines very soon. Nigerians will be adequately informed on developments. The multi-sectoral machinery uh, will be deployed to enhance the logistics to the last-mile administration processes that have been put in place. This will involve community mobilization, training, transportation, storage, operations. Explaining further, the Minister for Health, Osage Hanier, says the projection is to have between 40 to 50 percent of the population immunized against the pandemic in the first phase of the exercise, which effort will be complemented by the gift vaccine from corporate bodies as may be available and possible. We want to immunize about 60 to 70 percent of our population. If COVAX immunizes 20, then we have about 50, 40 to 50 to immunize within the next two years. So we have to pay for that, minus any uh, donations or that we get, like the MTN donation, for example. All those ones reduce the quantities that we have to get, that we have to uh, purchase, or any other that in future are given to us free of charge. Taking a look at the concerns expressed about the numerous vaccines available in the market, the governor of Cross River State, South South Nigeria, Ben Ayade, says why it behoves the government to take up its responsibility to the people by making vaccines available, there is the need to observe caution in the choice of the product to use. As a government, you need to responsibilize to the global challenges and see how you can protect your people. And also to think that we should do that with a lot of ecclesiastical caution. There are third-party philosophies that tend to suggest different agenda for this vaccine. But as a nation, I think that we should be very cautious with the choice. There are different types of vaccines. There are some of them that are using attenuated vaccines. So if it's attenuated, it means you have attenuated their life forms. So you need to store them in that deactivated form at sometimes at minus 80 degrees. So where is the facility for that storage? And if you don't meet that storage in the transport chain and you get an, a deactivated antigen to become active, it becomes a source of pathogenicity. And you cannot control the virulence because it has gone through a shock treatment for which is going through a recovery. And that's why you're having different strains. Ben Ayade's apprehensions are not unfounded because before now, the National Agency for Food and Drug Administration and Control, NABDAC, had warned against the use of unapproved vaccines, which has flooded the market. This, the head minister says, will be guided against by ensuring that vaccines are procured from certified and approved sources. Nigeria is also aware of official reports of large-scale counterfeit vaccines that are already in circulation. Since our vaccine needs for this year are virtually going to be met and satisfied by multilateral and bilateral original manufacturer sources, the Ministry of Health does not, for now, intend to procure vaccines from private importers and such vaccines may not be allowed into the country unless they are certified by NAFTAC. Importation of vaccines it's not cheap because of the fact that they are virtually new and not many sources and manufacturers have had their products accredited for use by the relevant international bodies like the WHO. In Ben Ayade's view, Nigeria should be planning on producing its own vaccines locally even if it has to buy now to meet urgent requirements for the vulnerable groups among the population.
What this country should do, truly, is to focus on setting up on the immediacy a vaccine production plant and just work on the serum of those who have recovered. And we have thousands of recovery. Yes, as a country, we need to respond to it. But if you want to buy the vaccine, please get some of the professors of virology in Nigeria to participate in the elucidation and validation process. NAVDAC has a duty to subject that vaccine to test. That's why I was talking about Fourier transform infrared spectroscopy, which does the analysis of every single chemical component that is in that vaccine. Otherwise, you have a synthetic molecule that has the ability to interfere with your RNA replication process. It will interfere with the gene manipulation process. One reason the Cross River State Governor Ben Ayade is so concerned is because of the short period between the time of manufacture and the use as well as the relatively unknown effect of the vaccines on a certain set of people amongst the population. The biosafety regulation requires that before you inject a vaccine of an unknown origin with short prior periods, not knowing its cumulative impact on pregnant women, on young children, on people with different kind of ailments, there are certain internal tests that must be done. Within one year, it's a very tough order. If you must import for the immediacy, then let's target the vulnerable population to address those ones. But we must quickly produce our own Nigerian-made vaccine for Nigerians. Nigeria has not been in such situation of multi-faced battle to ensure that the population can dwell securely on the promise of government to its people. In addition to the rampaging murderous headsmen, banditry and insurgency, all which have laid enormous weight on government's shoulder. What is clear now is that once the issue of vaccines for COVID-19 is resolved, that will be a minus one from the social issues making the people to lose sleep. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosa Atohengbe for Channel Africa News. Zimbabwe's President Emerson Nangagwa has relaxed the country's lockdown level with the aim to reopen the economy and schools. This comes after the country witnessed a huge reduction of the positive cases and deaths after the second wave that struck in January and killed more than a thousand people. Meanwhile, Zimbabwe is expected to receive a donation of vaccines from the UK, adding to the ones offered by China, India and Russia. Simon Muchema has more from Harare. Zimbabweans are hopeful the economy will get back to normal soon following a review of the COVID-19 lockdown by President Emerson Mnangagwa on Monday. The announcement by Mnangagwa came following revelations, COVID-19 cases and deaths that increased after a second wave in January had gone down. For the first time in two months, Zimbabwe recorded zero deaths on Saturday and Sunday and reduced COVID-19 positive burden. While vaccination will remain voluntary, President Mnangagwa urged citizens to remain vigilant and avoid the risky behavior that attracts a spike of the coronavirus. President Mnangagwa had this to say during a televised address to the nation on Monday. The wearing of face masks, temperature checks, as well as washing of hands or use of sanitizers, in all public areas remains mandatory. Two, the curfew is adjusted and will now be from 10 p.m. to 5.30 in the morning. Letters are no longer required for movement. Three, supermarkets can now remain open up to 7 p.m. 
reduce congestion and they must enforce social distancing within their premises. Following the announcement by Mnangagwa that trade by small businesses and industry will resume under strict World Health Organization guidelines, there is hope for citizens who are now at the verge of starvation. Economic activities will boost when the borders reopen, but Mnangagwa did not mention anything of the opening of the ports of entry. Borders were closed in the first lockdown in January when it was noted the country was now burdened with the South African variant of the virus that killed more than a thousand people within two months. Mnangagwa added, Industry to open with strict adherence to World Health Organization set standards and the national COVID-19 guidelines as such. The regular disinfection of premises, social distancing, hand sanitization, and the use of body temperature checks at entrances will continue. Non-compliance in this regard will attract targeted closures of such entities. As per the previous announcement, SMEs, Food markets and the informal sectors can reopen on condition that they strictly adhere to the World Health Organization set standards and the national COVID-19 guidelines. Although there are concerns, the vaccination program is an experiment on the Zimbabwean people by China. The revelation by Mnangagwa that some vaccinations will be donated by the UK may put some of those doubts to rest. Zimbabweans were worried the Chinese vaccines were not tested enough and were fast-tracked to the market. Mnangagwa had this to say. This generous gift will greatly contribute to our quest to achieve herd immunity. Over and above the combined total of 400,000 donated doses, another 600,000 doses of Chinese vaccine will be arriving in the coming weeks. A further 1,2 million doses have also been availed by Chinese companies for Zimbabwe. I equally express our gratitude to Russia, India, the United Kingdom, we have pledged donations of various vaccines. The vaccination will be administered for free. Meanwhile, the second Vice President, Kembo Mohadi, who is embroiled in an array of sexual storms, involving married staffers from his office, resigned Monday evening in a bid to save the image of the government. In Arare, Zimbabwe, for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms, on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa. From an African perspective.
It's 7.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Elections of the DRC's Senate final office is expected to take place today to replace Alexis Tambwe Mwamba office. Mwamba's office resigned last month after senators initiated petitions against its members. A single candidate is expected for the position of president, and that's uh, Modeste Bahati Lukwebo, a former ally of former President Joseph Kabila. Januel Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. The candidates for the various positions in the final office of this upper house of parliament had two days, Sunday and Monday, to campaign at the People's Palace, the parliament seat. 17 candidates are competing for the six vacant positions in the Senate offices. It's currently run by a temporary office headed by Leon Mamboleo after the Alexis Tambwemamba office resigned under Senator's pressure. One of the candidates is George Eric Makanku, who's competing for the Questa position. I would like to put all my skills at the service of our prestigious chamber and I undertake to exercise my duties at the quest rate in accordance with the prerogatives to remain available for all senators as well as for the administrative staff who supports us effectively in our noble duties. Regarding the position of the final office speaker, the temporary office has validated only one candidacy, that of Modeste Bahati Lukwebo, a former ally of former President Joseph Kabila, from whom he broke for not having obtained the Senate speaker position as the common front for the Congo. FCC, Kabila's political grouping, granted it to Tambwe Mwamba. I then asked Willy Wenga, who's a lawyer at the Kinshasa Gombe Bar, how lucky is Bahati Lukwebo to win as he's now the only candidate for the position. Bahati Lukwebo keeps his chances of being elected president of the Senate since he is the sole candidate for the vacant position. The great battle is the mobilization of senators to be present at the Senate on Tuesday to respond to the requirements. When the quorum is not reached, the electoral plenary cannot be held. The vice the president position is not to be filled. Its incumbent former Prime Minister Sami Badibanka is the only member of the Tambwe Mwamba office who has survived the Senator's petitions. Jean Noel Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. The Independent Review Panel, appointed by Speaker of South Africa's National Assembly, Tandi Mudise, has found that prima facie evidence exists to institute removal proceedings against public protector Busisiwe Mkwebane. Chaired by Justice Bess Ngabinde, alongside Advocate Dumisan Zabeza and Advocate Johan Daval, the panel had to investigate whether there is proof of incompetence or misconduct by Mkwebane. The DA brought a motion to Parliament form Kwebane's fitness to be tested following several damning court findings against her. Celine Merrington reports. The spokesperson of Parliament, Moloto Motapo, explains the findings of the panel. In its findings, the panel concluded that there is substantial information that constitutes prima facie evidence 
of incompetence and examples of this included the Pimafaki evidence demonstrating the public protector's overreach and exceeding of the bounds of her powers in terms of the Constitution and the Public Protector Act, as well as repeated errors of the same kind, such as incorrect interpretation of the law and other patent legal errors. The panel also found that there is sufficient information that constitutes prima facie evidence of misconduct, and this included the public protector's failure to reveal that she had meetings with the former president of the republic and the state security agency, and failure to honor an agreement with the South African Reserve Bank, thereby displaying non-compliance with the high standard of professional ethics as required by the Constitution. The DA Chief Whip, Natasha Mazzoni, has welcomed the findings. The Democratic Alliance welcomes the finding by the Independent Review Panel that there is a prima facie case for Parliament to institute removal proceedings against the public protector, Advocate Mkwabane. We are pleased by these findings and urge Parliament to institute the removal proceedings against Mkwabane without delay. Some of the other political parties in Parliament, such as ACDP MP Steve Swart, Voter Vessels from the Freedom Front Plus and IFP MP Naren Singh also reacted to this report. The courts have made a number of damning findings against the public protector where her fitness to hold office has been brought into question. The ACDP urges Parliament to institute the necessary proceedings in this regard without any further Delay. Parliament should now start the process of removing the current public protector without delay. That is extremely important for the integrity of this Chapter 9 institution and for the sanctity of our Constitution. Reading the report, uh, I want to, as a, on behalf of the IFP, compliment uh, the judge and the other two legal panellists for having provided a very, very comprehensive uh, report and findings and uh, we look forward to debating this report in the National Assembly and as the IFP we will support the fact that the National Assembly proceeds to appoint a committee to look into the fitness of the public protector uh, into holding office. In accordance with the National Assembly rules, Speaker Tandi Modise must table the report and after consideration, the House must decide whether further investigation is needed. If so, an ad hoc committee must be established. The Speaker must inform the President of any action or decision coming from the recommendations. Zaline Merrington, Parliament. Gateway to Africa is our entertaining and educational tourism, travel and business show. Join us every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time as we explore the tourism landscape in Africa. Make a date with Gateway to Africa every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time. At 7.27 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our South Africa could soon have its first land court. Justice and Correctional Services Minister Ronald Lamula says the new land court bill will be introduced to Parliament soon. The proposed new court will adjudicate on all land-related matters such as expropriation and outstanding claims. Lila Magnus reports. 
Justice and Correctional Services Minister Ronald Lamola says the new bill is the outcome of the work done by the Interministerial Committee on Land Reform, which is chaired by Deputy President David Mabuza. The proposed new land court will have a permanent judge, president and four presiding judges. It will allow for hearsay evidence and the court must check that settlement agreements give just and equitable compensation to landowners in line with Section 25 of the Constitution. Lamola says people who cannot afford their own legal representatives will now also have access to assistance through legal aid. So this bill allows um, land activists like um, akin to trade unions uh, representing their, their members in the CCMA, in the Labour Courts or the Labour Appeals Court. So it is almost geared the same way as the, the, the CCMA kind of approach and the Labour Appeals Court. Agricultural, Land Reform and Rural Development Minister Toko Dediza says the Land Court is envisaged to create a cheaper and faster dispute resolution mechanism in the form of mediation and arbitration where there are no disputes over the land claim. This is where, in my view, the Land Court uh, Bill will assist once it's an act. It would allow for mediation where such matters are not really difficult that they might have to wait uh, for a judge, for instance, but can be settled through mediation. It therefore would actually enable us to fast track the processes um, that uh, we have. The land court will deal with all land-related disputes. The court will deal with any dispute that may arise out of the, of the, out of the land question, which may also include the dispute that may arise out of the expropriation bill as it is finalized by, by parliament, or any dispute that may relate to the, the legislations that have been listed there. The court will sit in Johannesburg but will be able to move anywhere in the country. The Land Court Bill also proposes a land appeals court with a jurisdiction equal to the Supreme Court of Appeal in relation to land matters. I am Leela Magnus in Pretoria. For your latest on the novel coronavirus disease for Channel Africa, Amoki Kinzaka in Yaoundi, Cameroon. Avoid touching your eyes, nose and mouth. Hands touch many surfaces and can pick up viruses. At 7.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. man Musa, good morning. In the headlines, Zimbabwe's second vice president, Kimbo Mohadi, has described the sexual misconduct allegations against him as a campaign to discredit him. Meanwhile, in the U.S., fellow Democrats are putting pressure on New York Governor Andrew Cuomo to resign. He's accused of sexual misconduct by two former aides. And police in Malawi's capital have used tear gas to disperse irate school pupils who caused major traffic disruptions as they staged protests to force schools to reopen. Those are the stories making headlines. SABC News. 
independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Anne. It is 7.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. In honor of International Women's Day, the 2021 Forbes Women Africa Leading Women Summit will be held for the first time as a free-to-attend virtual event and across two days, March the 8th and 9th. The event anticipated to draw a global audience of more than 2,000 attendees is presented by MasterCard, a world pioneer in payment innovation and technology. At the summit, MasterCard will address the inclusion of Africa's women in the economy through digital financial inclusion. Joining us on the line to unpack this topic is MasterCard's Ebehije Momo, who will be participating as a panelist at the summit. Good morning, Ebehije, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu. It's nice to be able to join you. Thank you. Now, firstly, briefly explain what digital financial inclusion entails as far as women and girls are concerned. Okay, thank you so much. It was really great to be able to uh, speak to uh, online, online this morning. So, first of all, MasterCard is, believes in a world where everyone is connected to the possibility that comes with digital economy. And this is why we have worked within the last couple of years tirelessly to advance the financial inclusion. Uh, in, between 2015 and 2020, MasterCard has already reached 500 million people that were previously excluded from the financial services in the digital economy. And last year, we made a global commitment to bring 1 billion people into the digital economy by 2025. And these would include 50 million small businesses and with a direct focus on 25 women entrepreneurs. So the, we know that the only way to achieve uh, a sustainable and inclusive growth is by building a more connected ecosystem, thriving a world beyond cash, where everyone has equal access to better lives. So when we are talking about the digital and financial uh, inclusion, what it really entails is that we, we, it gives us a very important way to connect women to innovative solutions that will help bridge the gender gap uh, as a tech, as a payment technology company. And then also we recognize the potential of the digital partnership to accomplish this. So, for example, in, in, in MasterCard, we have a MasterCard lab that's focused on financial inclusion. And, of course, the, this, this, this as a tech company is, is the first lab that is focused on financial inclusion. And we actually have a hub in, uh, in Nairobi. Now, how are we supporting women entrepreneurs? We have so many initiatives that we have done across the continent to be able to you know, support these uh, initiatives. Uh, I'll give you a typical example. Uh, in Nigeria, for example, where I'm currently based, we have partnered with Omanese uh, Skin Food. That's a West African skincare company that produces high-quality body care products using natural ingredients. And with our partnership and through a grant from Mastercard Center for Inclusive Growth, Omani Skinfu is now closer to its 2025 goals to empower 10,000 women entrepreneurs to run their own skin food merchant. And, you know, you talked about not just women, but also girls. I'd I, I like to share with you what we have done with the Girls for Tech program. Uh, if you know, uh, the Girls for Tech program, we are aimed to bridge the tech 
skill shortage. Through this program, we have been able to provide digital skills to girls aged between 8 to 12 years old as part of our inquiry-based uh, science, technology, engineering, and math activities. Also, to help bridge digital and financial literacy gap among school students and uh, uh, young adults in Nigeria, MasterCard partnered with Junior Achievement Nigeria. And this program has helped develop to, and also equip participating students with the essential skills to prepare them for the future, for future success in digital entrepreneurship. Those are some of the uh, initiatives that we have done to be able to support women uh, when it comes to building the digital economy. Now, Ebihije, let's speak about some of the challenges faced by women in uh, the digital financial inclusion agenda and uh, also bearing, bearing in mind um, the global uh, COVID-19 pandemic, obviously um, having exacerbated some of these challenges and what it will, ter- it will take to to turn the tide. Okay, thank you so much, Lulu. You know, women have made some very impressive gains over the past decades, and I must say it's, it's no secret that women have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. So that is not a secret. But there are there are they are over uh, represented in the sectors that is hardest hit by the economic downturn. And you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the informal sector. This is the sector that was really hit by the pandemic. And then there is also a pronounced digital gender gap in an increasing virtual world. And that is really the truth. And so, and so even the, the, the pressure that it comes with looking after children as our responsibility as women and a few factors that have left women particularly really vulnerable during this time of the pandemic. Actually, in November, a new data from the UN Women showed that pandemic risk has set back the gender equality by 25 years due to the increased burden of household chores and a lot of things that are, are, are going on. Yes. We also know that uh, the, 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 the latest MasterCard Index on Women Entrepreneurs showed a staggering 9 out of 10, that's 87% of women business owners, say that they have been adversely affected. So, indeed, there has been an, a, an impact. I'll give you an example. In Ghana, for instance, a sexual breakdown reveals that a large proportion of women own business. That's about 85% of it operate in highly impacted sectors compared to 50.5% of men in, in Uganda, for example. So these findings help sort of beckon us to consider the cost of untapped potential in women as contributors, not just in business and society, but the national and the global scale as we chart the path of, to, to, to go past COVID-19 recovery across Africa. So what, what are some of the things that we believe can be done? As governments and businesses across the continent, we plan, as they plan their route to recovery, they must ensure that they are offering the right support program, solutions and innovation that will enable women the opportunity to thrive. Now we hear about the new normal that presents a, a once-in-life opportunity to remove existing barrier, drive greater gender participation and parity for women. And so we must not waste this crisis. Yes, it's a crisis, but it's also an opportunity. So what do we do? By joining forces with different stakeholders like government, financial services provided, and even through these platforms such as the Forbes Women African Leading Women Summit, we believe that our collective work will make a world of a lot better for our, our communities and, and society. Yes, indeed, the COVID-19 pandemic has played a negative role in women establishing and growing their business, uh, most especially the women in the informal sector. 
But the revelation should ignite the actions among all of us, especially since it's only, the, the enabling, it's only by enabling women that we can collectively unlock the full potential of this wonderful uh, continent. Now, what's the importance of uh, the Forbes Women Africa Leading Summit? And why should people be engaged in this event, uh, particularly this year when it's coming uh, through virtually? Oh, okay. Thanks a lot, Lilo. Now, the Forbes Women African Leading Women Summit has really grown to become one of the biggest female empowerment events in Africa. And it really boasts of high caliber attendees and um, parallel speakers, which, uh, which are always line up. Now, it is important because, number one, it's a source of inspiration and it helps in connecting and empowering women in Africa and helping them to realize their, their potential. Now, the summit also offers a very safe space where women can convene and discuss issues that are pertinent to them. And that is really important that we discuss such issues, issues affecting their finances, their skill set, and then the know-how when navigating their business through the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, while still remaining in business, I'm making an income to support their families during this difficult time. So this summit is really important uh, at this time for women. Now, very quickly, Ebuhidre, um, can anyone, uh, you know, uh, join virtually? What can we hope to see come from this event? Yeah, and this is, thank you so much. That's really a very good question. This is the first time that anyone can actually join. Now, what do you, what do you expect to see in the event? We are going to be seeing or hearing and listening to solution-based approaches that address the challenges that are facing the African women, particularly in the digital and the financial space across the continent. And then these solutions, when you hear them, will help enable women to advance in the technological and financial areas and help them grow their businesses and have a long life that businesses that have a long life lifespan, and that is really critical because as we grow in business, what we want, we want to be able to leave our business. Another thing that it will, it will help you, there will be a, a great exposure to diverse views because it's important that we listen to diverse views. And then most, of, most importantly, inspiration from women. Women who have followed their passions in a wide range of fields and despite their adversity succeeded. And those are some of the things that anyone who joined it virtually will be able to get during the summit. Well, Ebihidra, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much, Lulu. It's been a great pleasure. To and join. thank you. Um, that's uh, Ebehije Momo, Mastercard's area business head for West Africa. And she was joining us on the line. For your latest on the novel coronavirus disease for Channel Africa, Amoki Kinzaka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. Avoid touching your eyes, nose and mouth. Hands touch many surfaces and can pick up viruses. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netlet to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussion have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive 
to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I've tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices, and I'm your host, Avurengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9 and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa, rise. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. It's 7.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our economics update up next with Nosithia Zuma. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. South Africa's Standard Bank has hired an independent environmental and social advisor to help assess its environment in Total's East African crude oil pipeline that environmental groups have opposed. About 263 civil society organizations from around the world have urged the chief executives of 25 banks not to participate in loans to fund the construction of the 3.5 billion East Africa crude oil pipeline. They have argued in an open open letter that this pipeline would pose immense threats to local communities, water supplies and biodiversity in Uganda, Tanzania, Democratic Republic of Congo and Kenya. South Africa's former ESCOM CEO Brian Molefe will return to the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture in Johannesburg today to give evidence on Wednesday. Former ESCOM executive Matela Gogo was cross-examined. He denied that Gupta Associates Salim Esa paid just over $7,000 for his family's trip to Indonesia and Dubai. Gogo, who appeared before the Commission for the fourth time, also contradicted himself several times yesterday regarding how and when he found out the InfoPost email address belonged to Gupta associate Salim Essa. Gogo claims he thought the email address belonged to former ESCOM board chair Ben Ngubani. I'm saying nothing like that happened. Okay. I have booked, my family and I have booked, mm. here are the documents, mm. the six of us, mm. we've, pay, we've paid 332,255,094 mm-hmm. cents. I have my records of my traveling travel. And you, you never asked anybody I never to asked make bookings with them. Uh, to make bookings with them. Yeah, okay. 
The Democratic Alliance in Gauteng, South Africa, wants an investigation into alleged overspending and irregularities in the Nazrek Field Hospital contract. The party claims that the hospital has cost the government $9,900 per patient and that the Auditor General has found procurement irregularities. The Field Hospital treated 1,658 patients as it had been set up in April last year as a 500-bed COVID-19 isolation and quarantine site. The facility was closed down on Sunday and has been decommissioned. The Gauteng government says it added 5,000 beds in hospitals since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Dear Gauteng Health Spokesperson Jack Bloom says the money spent on the Nazrek Field Hospital is wasteful expenditure and that it should be probed by the Special Investigations Unit. When we were closing the other three quarantine sites, we did indicate that uh, the, the advice that we'd got in then was that we should keep the Nazareth facility open ahead of the festive period. Due to the expansion of the public health care system that has seen uh, over 4,200 uh, functional beds being added, a decision has been taken to close and decommission the Nazareth field hospital. Operations at clinics in Harare have collapsed following the resignation of over 100 nurses employed by the council. The resignations are over the non-payment of their COVID-19 risk allowances. Some of the clinics have had to close their doors. The city council has also not paid them their monthly salaries. However, the government insists it's paying the US$75 allowance directly into the accounts of each frontline worker entitled to the allowance. And finally, a manager at Amazon.com is suing the online retailer for discrimination, saying it hires black people for lower positions and promotes them more slowly than white workers, and that she was subjected to harassment. The lawsuit from Charlotte Newman, a business development head at Amazon Web Service who is black, says the company suffers from a systematic pattern of insurmountable discrimination, despite its pledge to fight racism and statements of solidarity from Chief Executive Officer Jeff Bezos. Seattle-based Amazon said it is investigating the claims. For your financial indicators, one U.S. dollar is trading at 381 Nigerian Nara, 11.04 Botswana Bula, 109.80 Kenyan Shilling and 21.87 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar is trading at 5.64 Brazilian Rule, 74.20 Russian Ruble, 73.45 Indian Rupee, 6.47 Chinese Yuan at 20.88 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 71 pence to the British Pound at 82 cents to the Euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,710 and platinum at $1,173 per ounce, while brand crude oil is at $62.81 a barrel. For Channel Africa, I'm Nosikizuma. Thank you, Sisle. It's time for our sports update with uh, Figile Lingwati.
First up in our sports update, we begin with cricket news. While the cricket world is fixated on what's happening in Ahmedabad, with big boys India and England getting ready for another slugfest, Afghanistan will play host to Zimbabwe in a low-key affair in a series featuring two tests and three T20s in the UAE. Their five-day affairs have no bearing on the ICC World Championships. The two matches at Sheikh Zahid Stadium in Abu Dhabi hold special importance for two teams that are trying to establish their credentials in the traditional format of the game. South African billionaire Precious Mitsipe is reported to be in pole position to become the next FIFA, or rather the Confederations of Afghan Football President. With just less than two weeks before the presidential elections in Morocco, media reports suggest Mutsipe's competitors have agreed to pull out of the race. According to reports, a deal was brokered by FIFA President Gianni Infantino for two of CAF presidential hopefuls Ahmed Yaya and Augustin Senghor to step aside and instead beg Mutsipe for the position. South African newspaper Times Live reports that part of the agreement is that both Yaya and Senghor will become Mutsipe's deputies should he win the elections. Mutsipe's only opponent is now Jacques Anuma, president of the Ivory Coast Football Association, who is a former FIFA executive member. And South Africa's 2021 Rugby World Cup campaign in New Zealand will form part of a broader plan to develop the women's game. South Africa's national women's rugby team should be more competitive by the time the World Cup rolls around again in 2025, thanks to a revision of a national and provincial structures as well as some key appointments. Rasi Erasmus, South Africa's director of rugby, put the challenge into perspective recently when he revealed that only 3,000 women compete in open division. By comparison, as many as 85,000 men play the game at senior level. It's little wonder that top men's teams in the Super Rugby, Pro 14 and Curry Cup competitions can boast so much depth. The sixth edition of the Africa Cross-Country Championships, which was scheduled to take place on the 6th and the 7th of March in Lomé in Togo, has been postponed to a later date. In a statement, the Confederation of African Athletics, CAA, says the announcement was made following a request by the Togolese authorities who raised sanitary measures to contain the spread of the COVID-19 pandemic. Togo has so far registered 6,548 coronavirus cases and 82 deaths. Meanwhile, victory by Brendan Grace in the PGA Tours Puerto Rico Open over the weekend translated into a massive 64 plays jump on this latest official world golf ranking, and he finds himself in the 83rd position. The South African was languishing down in 147th and missed put on what would normally be a regular tournament for him, the World Golf Championships Workday Championship at the concession. But the recent good form translated into his second victory on the PGA Tour and his first on the U.S. circuit since he won the RBC Heritage in April 2016. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzora Magadza, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Our taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Where Did We Go Wrong? by Stimela. Goodbye and keep safe. Tell me, tell me. Tell me